0: We are continuing our series through the Apostles' Creed, Ancient Future Christianity, and this is message number four. It was close to Christmas, and a Sunday school teacher posed this question to his class of young children. What was, what was Mary's husband's name? And the children thought for a while, and suddenly one little boy thrust his hand in the air and said, I know, teacher, I know. His name was Virg. The teacher was somewhat startled to hear that news, but didn't want to abruptly correct the little boy, so he decided to ask him another question, and and how do you know his name was Virg? He goes, that's easy. My mom and dad told me that Jesus came from Virgin Mary. (laughs) My son frequently tells me that I should skip the attempts at humor and stick to my day job, so let's quickly move on. This is message number three in our series. Would you stand with me and let's declare our faith together in the words of the Apostles Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to Hades. As we progress through our study of the Apostles' Creed, it's my privilege this morning to open God's Word to you with regard to the phrase that says of Jesus Christ that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And to do that, I want to answer four basic questions. First, this will help you fill in your blanks, the meaning of the virgin birth, what is it? Second, the fact or the historicity of the virgin birth, did it really happen? Third, answering objections to the virgin birth, is it credible? And fourth, the importance of the virgin birth, does it matter? Would you bow in prayer again with me? Lord, would you come now by your spirit, would you open the eyes of our hearts that we would see the things that you want to reveal. Lord, that you would open the ears of our hearts, that we would hear that which you would speak to us. May we think your thoughts after you as you make them clear to us. And Lord, would you teach us to respond appropriately in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first then, the meaning of the virgin birth, what is it? Or in other words, what exactly are Christians saying when we say in the words of the Apostles' Creed that Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary? The answer is that we are describing the mystery-filled, miraculous mode of entry of the Son of God into the world, into human flesh, and into human history, And we are, in fact, affirming two things the Bible asserts as true about that entry. First, that Jesus Christ was conceived in the womb of a human woman by agency of the Holy Spirit, entirely without the agency of a human father, that is, without male biological contribution. Secondly, that Mary was a virgin at the time of conception, and remained a virgin until a time subsequent to Jesus' birth. Some have therefore suggested that, I, that rather than lumping these two together, under the heading virgin birth, we should instead employ two designations, the virgin conception and the virgin birth. And as we're going to see this morning, the virgin conception and birth establish the most basic Christian doctrine regarding the person of Jesus Christ, his dual nature, that he is both son of God and son of man. Second, then, we should consider the fact or the historicity of the virgin birth. Did it really happen? And to answer that question, we need first to understand that the Old Testament prophets anticipated the virgin birth. The virgin conception and birth of Christ Fulfilled biblical prophecy. And there are two noteworthy prophecies in particular that we should consider together. The first is in Genesis chapter 3. The scene is the Garden of Eden. Eve has been tempted by the serpent, who is the embodiment of Satan. She and Adam have sinned. God is pronouncing to Adam, to Eve, and to the serpent, respectively, the consequences of their rebellion. And in verses 14 to 15, God looks behind the serpent and addresses the evil one that the serpent represents. In verse 15 he says to Satan, "I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your heel and or he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel." Here in the immediate aftermath of the fall of humanity in the garden, God is promising a solution. A male redeemer who will be born to the offspring of the woman. The serpent will wound him, but the redeemer will crush the serpent's head, dealing a fatal blow. It's a hopeful prophecy from the mouth of God himself. It is our creator God announcing that he will act decisively to destroy the work of the devil, that he will take the initiative to solve the predicament of our sin and our separation from God. Jesus, the Bible says, is that Redeemer. He is the seed or the offspring of the woman. Jesus is the one who came to strike the serpent and to reverse the curse. So by the birth of Jesus... God set in motion the end game that would fulfill his promises to redeem his people, to destroy sin and finally death, and to usher in a new humanity with Christ at its head. The second prophecy is found in the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 7 and verse 14, familiar to most of you. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, the historical setting for this prophecy is the reign of Ahaz, king of Judah. This is during the time of the divided kingdom. There was a kingdom of Israel and a kingdom of Judah. The nation of Syria and the kingdom of Israel have, in fact, joined together to make war on the kingdom of Judah. And Ahaz is understandably filled with fear. It's important to understand as we come to many prophecies in the Old Testament that they have both a short-term fulfillment and a long-term fulfillment. And that is true with this one in particular. And without going into a long and tedious explanation, the short-term fulfillment in this case is really God saying to Ahaz it's going to be okay it's going to be okay, I've got this, this child whose name means God with us who is a reminder to you that uh, that I am with you will be born and before he's old enough to know good from evil, these two kings that you fear so much will be gone. And notice that there's no claim or requirement in the short-term fulfillment that Isaiah was speaking of anything but a natural conception and a natural birth. But in his gospel, Luke applies this prophecy in its long-term fulfillment directly to the birth of Jesus Christ. That is Isaiah 7:14 points forward to the birth of Messiah. Some have observed that the word translated virgin in Isaiah's prophecy is Alma, Alma, and really only means a young woman of marriageable age. And often they proceed to discount the prophecy as applying in any way to Jesus. But consider these three points. First, that when a Hebrew woman was Of marriageable age, it went without saying that she was a virgin. The consequences that were prescribed for promiscuity and losing one's virginity before marriage were dire to say the least. Secondly, in the year 3 BC, at about the time that Jesus was what we would call a preschooler, there were 70 Hebrew scholars that came together to produce a faithful translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into common Greek, the predominant language of the day. And when they came to Isaiah 7, verse 14, these learned men chose unanimously to replace the Hebrew word Alma with the Greek word Parthenon. Unlike the Hebrew Alma, there is no ambiguity whatsoever in the word Parthenon. It clearly and always means virgin. Third, and most importantly, in Luke's narrative of the angel Gabriel's announcement to Mary that she would be the mother of Messiah, twice she is identified with that exact word, Parthenon. She's identified as a virgin, and the rest of the conversation confirms that to be the case. Mary self-identifies as someone who was not and never had been Sexually active. Second, we need to make note that the apostles clearly taught the virgin conception and the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Both Matthew and Luke are crystal clear in their testimony to the virgin birth in their gospels. Matthew's narrative focuses on Joseph's response to the announcements from an angel of the Lord of the miraculous nature of Mary's pregnancy. Luke's narrative focuses primarily on the Virgin Mary's response to the announcement of the angel Gabriel that she would become mother of Messiah, the Son of God. There's no hint in the respective texts of cooperation or collusion or conspiracy between Matthew and Luke. It wasn't like they got together to create a fantastic story. They clearly wrote independently of each other, And yet the two narratives perfectly complement each other. Their accounts include such detail that their sources had to have been either Joseph and Mary themselves or at least Mary herself. With regard to the other two Gospels, Mark and John, Mark's Gospel begins not with the birth of Christ but later with the ministry of John the Baptist, and John is less historical and more theological in the introduction to his gospel, but he is no less clear in the view that the birth of Jesus Christ was the, uh, was the eternal Word of God, the one and only taking on human flesh. He wrote that the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, We beheld his glory, glory as of the only one and only from the Father. Well, let's look now at the two narratives of Matthew and Luke, beginning with Matthew's. Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now just some brief observations of what this passage is telling us about what we are considering today. First, Mary and Joseph were betrothed. And betrothal is like an engagement, but much, much more permanent. It was tantamount to marriage, in the sense that it could only be dissolved by either divorce or death. The bride remained in her father's home. The groom's job during the period of betrothal was to prepare a place for the two of them to live when they married In fact, this is the imagery that Jesus employed in John 14 when he said to his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. Second, after some time away from their hometown of Nazareth, Mary had uncomfortably and inconveniently turned up pregnant during the betrothal period. And Joseph knew for a fact that he was not the father. Mary claimed that the father of her baby was God. Wink, wink. So she was either delusional or she was a liar or she was telling the truth. And this, of course, posed a very, very serious dilemma. It would have been regarded as an affront to God, to Joseph, to the sacred vows that they had already taken, to both of their families and to their friends and their community. In earlier times, the penalty would have been that the pregnant woman, presumed to be adulterous, was stoned to death. At this time in history, Joseph had three options open to him. He could divorce her quietly, or he could humiliate her by a very public divorce, or third, he could marry her and bear the shame along with her. Joseph, being a righteous man, Scripture says, had mercifully decided on the first option, to divorce her quietly. But third, then came the dream. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, The angel is unnamed. We could presume that it's probably Gabriel again, but his message was clear and to the point. Joseph was not to fear to take the next step and take Mary as his wife because her pregnancy was, in fact, of divine origin. What Mary had claimed about the nature of her pregnancy was, in fact, true. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So notice, Mary was a virgin at her conception. Her child would be a son, and Joseph was to give him the name Jesus, for he would save his people from their sins. Mary's child would be the Savior of Israel. So what do you do with a command like that from an angel of the Lord? You obey it. You obey it. So Joseph, despite recognizing the the suspicion, the accusations of illegitimacy that others would assign to Mary's pregnancy, took her as his wife. They tied the knot. They were formally married. In time, she gave birth to her son, and in mutual obedience to the command of the angel, they called his name Jesus. But notice one other thing with me before we move on. Verse 25 says that Joseph knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And what that means is that although they were legally married, Joseph did not have sexual relations with her until after Jesus was born. Mary was still a virgin when she gave birth. That is the biblical witness. Now, the next and perhaps better known passage is in Luke's gospel where the focus is on Mary. Mary. Beginning at verse 26 of chapter 1, in the sixth month, that is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. The angel departed from her. We're going to come back to the initial interchange between Gabriel and Mary a little later. But for now, let's pick it up at verse 31 and the announcement or the annunciation to Mary. She would conceive in her womb, give birth to a son. She was to call his name Jesus. And up to that point, what we have is a nearly identical parallel to the angel's message to Joseph. But instead of saying, as he did to Joseph, what Jesus would do, that is, save his people from their sins, the angel's message to Mary focuses primarily on who he would be the Son of the Most High, the Son of David, King of Israel, reigning forever over an an eternal kingdom. And all of that is messianic language. What Mary would have have heard at that moment is that she was to be the mother of the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. Now, I don't know about you, but if I heard that kind of message from an angel... I'd be a little flabbergasted. I might say, who are you, and am I on candid camera? Where's the camera? And I don't think most young women would have their wits about them to ask the question that Mary asked next. Mary was a cool customer with a sharp mind. Her question was simply, okay, how? 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 How will this be since I am a virgin? How is this going to work seeing that I am not now nor have I ever been sexually active? The angel's answer is short and to the point. It's what we usually call a packed statement. It directly answers her question how as well as the question who. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Oh, what are we to make of the angel Gabriel's answer? First, it's important to clarify that what he's describing is not at all like the mythologies of the Greeks or Romans or any of the other mystery religions as some down through the centuries have claimed. He is not describing a God or a demon having physical, sexual relations with a human woman. Instead, as I mentioned to you two weeks ago, the language here is actually reminiscent of the description of the primordial activity of the Spirit of God before God commenced the six-day process of creation so that we read in Genesis 1-2, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of God. Of the waters. It reminds us of the cloud of God's presence that overshadowed the nation of Israel and led them in the wilderness following the exodus from Egypt. And it calls to mind the bright cloud that overshadowed Jesus, Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, first concealing and then revealing the Son of God. You can read about that in Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9. Out of that bright cloud came the voice of God, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So far from being something impure and unholy, Mary's virginal conception by the Holy Spirit of God is presented to us as something entirely pure and entirely holy. And it had to be so. Look with me again at verse 35. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. What I want you to see there is the word therefore. Therefore, it's very important. As some have said, when you encounter the word therefore, you should ask what it's therefore. The word speaks of causation. The overshadowing of God's presence has its intended result. Therefore, 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 the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. We don't understand it. We can't explain it. It remains a magnificent mystery to our mortal minds, but there it is. We can accept it. We can shelve it, or we can reject it. Mary could have rejected it. Recognizing her still wondering mind, the angel reminded her, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary's answer expressed her buy-in. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So the prophets anticipated it, the apostles taught it, and next we should note that the church has always maintained it. From the first century teaching of the apostles to the present day, biblical Christians have always embraced this doctrine. Now don't forget that Acts 1 verse 14 tells us that Mary, the mother of Jesus and her other sons, Jesus' brothers, were numbered among his disciples, and they were present in the early church. So, if this teaching of her virginal conception and virginal birth had been fabricated, Mary in particular would have had ample opportunity to say it wasn't true. And one doesn't have to look very far into church history to see that the virgin birth was central to the proclamation of the early church fathers. Men like Justin Martyr and Irenaeus, Tertullian, Basil, Jerome, and Augustine all wrote about the importance of the doctrine of the virgin birth. So the church has consistently understood the virgin birth as central to the message of the scriptures. The church fathers understood that without a proper understanding of Jesus in the womb, one would never arrive at a proper understanding of the significance of Jesus on the cross. They regarded the nature of Christ's conception then as a central element of the gospel message. Well, obviously there are many objections that have been raised through the years, many objections still raised today. So we ask the question, is it, credible. Is this teaching, this doctrine of the virgin conception and the virgin birth credible? Objections abounded even in Jesus' time. Understandably, the rumors of Jesus' illegitimacy were common, especially in their hometown of Nazareth. In Mark 6, we read that Jesus began teaching in the synagogue in Nazareth. And at verse 3, we read that they took offense at him and said, insinuating doubts about his paternity, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? Notice, not the son of Joseph, but only the son of Mary. Later in John 8, 41, in a tense conversation with the scribes and Pharisees, one of the many in the temple, one of them said to him, reflecting the rumors about the questionable circumstances of his birth, we... We're not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. See, there there were only two options available to the people of Jesus' day, and there are only two options available to us today. Either Jesus was, in fact, as the apostles taught and as his mother Mary affirmed, born of the Virgin by the Holy Spirit, or he was the product of of an adulterous relationship. And again, each of us gets to examine the evidence and come to our own decision, make our own judgment. In the past two centuries in particular, it has become fashionable among some theologians and scientists to regard the doctrine of the virgin birth as a mere myth, a story that might convey some religious meaning but entirely lacks any historical validation. The theologians who have abandoned their confidence in the inspiration of and authority of Scripture object to the notion of the virgin conception of Jesus and claim that Jesus is merely the product of Joseph's natural sexual relations with Mary, as were the rest of his brothers and sisters. And in fact, the goal of liberal theology has been to present the entirety of the New Testament as presenting a mythological worldview that enlightened, modern, educated men and women simply cannot accept as real. And They claim that the only way to get to the real meaning of the Bible and to discover the real historical Jesus is to deconstruct the scriptures by divesting them of all the vestiges of the miraculous and in so doing to strip Jesus of any claims to deity and any supernatural power and divine authority. And as they do that, the effect is that they reduce him to nothing more than an enlightened teacher, an existential model, or a mere moral example. And they offer nothing more than a materialistic, humanistic worldview and then demand that the claims of the Bible must be subordinated to it. Those traditional doctrines that don't fit easily within the secular framework must be then summarily discarded. There's one liberal theologian, Gerd Ludemann, who wrote, the tomb was full and the manger was empty. And in that saying, he rejected both the virgin birth and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You know, there, there are other contemporary theologians, some well-known pastors of our day, who have affirmed the deity of Christ while at the same time denying the virgin birth as an essential doctrine. And in so doing, they're forced into claiming, in fact, they, they paint themselves into a corner, they're forced into claiming that that Jesus' deity came by a different route, that he wasn't, in the words of Silent Night, Lord at his birth, but came into his divine nature later by some other means. Well, in any case, these theologians who claim that the virgin birth can be discarded even as the deity of Christ is affirmed are frankly either intellectually dishonest or just theologically incompetent, and they are in their pride subordinating the authoritative teachings of God's word to the limits of their human intellects. They're saying, in effect, I'm smarter and I'm more enlightened than you Neanderthal, naive, Bible-believing Christians. If I can't understand the miraculous power of God, then I'll arbitrarily deny it. And, of course, there are objections to the doctrine of the virgin birth that come from the scientific community. They rightly observed that parthenogenesis, the scientific term for, the, for virgin birth in general, though it is observed in some species of fish and reptiles and insects, is biologically impossible in human beings. And even if human parthenogenesis could be engineered in a laboratory, without introduction of the male XY chromosome, the child conceived would necessarily always be female. So again, we're faced with the miraculous nature of the biblical teaching of the virgin conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary. The creator God, overshadowing Mary, provided the male chromosome that resulted in the birth of a male child. When we consider the credibility of the biblical claim, of the conception of Jesus without the involvement of a human male father were faced first with the question of whether we exist within a closed, static system that is always and only ruled by natural laws or whether we live within an open, dynamic system that is the product of an intelligent, personal, benevolent creator who intervenes in our world and who possesses the power to suspend and to manipulate the natural laws that he himself established in order to accomplish his redemptive purposes. When we consider the credibility of the biblical record regarding the conception and birth of Christ, we have to decide whether what we are reading is nothing more than a fanciful fabrication or it's a reliable historical account written by trustworthy men within an accountable community. And I would just suggest that you are reasonable people. Uh, you can and you must decide. But may I suggest to you that if you believe in God as the creator who spoke the world into existence, out of nothing at all. And if you believe in a world in which miracles are not only possible, and in fact take place even now, and if we accept as factual the many miraculous events in the biblical record in both the Old and New Testaments, then we really shouldn't have any problem at all with something as small as a virgin conception and the birth of God's Son. The God who spoke all of creation, all of the cosmos into being, certainly could speak whatever was necessary into Mary's womb for the conception of Jesus Christ. Now I know that some of you grew up in a Catholic family, you went to Catholic catechism, and you're going to ask me what I believe about Mary, so let's just take a moment to briefly observe that there is indeed something about Mary. Uh, Let me point out first, with really all of the sensitivity I can muster, and in all sincerity, that the focus of the biblical doctrine... The incarnation of God's Son, that is the larger doctrinal category of which the virgin conception and birth are a major part, is in fact not on Mary, but on Jesus Christ. And I would quickly add that we cannot accept some of the Roman Catholic doctrines regarding Mary, such as the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of Mary that asserts her sinlessness, the doctrine of Mary as co-mediator along with Jesus, the doctrine of Mary's assumption into heaven immediately upon or even before her death, the doctrine of Mary's perpetual virginity or the doctrine that confers upon her the title and status of Queen of Heaven. And the one simple reason that we cannot accept much of Roman Catholic Mariology is that it is simply neither taught nor implied anywhere in the pages of Scripture. It is entirely without biblical foundation. It has instead emerged from the imaginations of Catholic scholars and evolved from there. That doesn't mean that we should not highly honor Mary. We should honor Mary, and for several reasons. Let me suggest just five. First, we should honor Mary for the fact that God granted her his divine favor and chose her out of all of the women in Israel for all time, to be the earthly mother of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Christ. That is no small thing. Secondly, that she set an example for us by her submitting humbly and willingly to God's plan and purpose for her life when it was announced to her by the angel Gabriel. We should follow that example. You and I ought to be ready to promptly do whatever God calls us to do whenever he calls us to do it. That characterized Mary. Third, that in her song of praise in Luke chapter 1, she showed herself to be astute biblically, theologically, socially, politically. She was devout She was shockingly aware and insightful for a young Jewish woman of her day. Mary was sharp. Fourth, we should honor her for the fact that she's named among the disciples in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. She became a follower of her own son. She became a disciple of Jesus. And then fifth, that she herself was an active participant in the early church in Jerusalem, along with her other sons, and presumably her daughters as well. Now, we don't know whatever happened to Joseph. He just disappears from the narrative. It appears that Mary, at some point, became a single mother. Now, either Joseph died... Or Joseph rejected Jesus as son of God. He just doesn't appear in the biblical record any, anymore after the narratives of Jesus' birth. So Mary became a single mother at some point, and she excelled as the spiritual leader of her family. Finally, one final all-important question. The importance of the virgin birth, does it matter? Does it matter? And in short, it matters immensely. The virgin birth is an underlying assumption in everything the Bible says about the nature and character of Jesus. It possesses significant doctrinal importance for the Christian faith at large, So consider with me three implications of the virgin birth, and then I'm done. First, that the virgin conception and birth affirms the true identity of Jesus Christ as truly God and truly man. Wayne Grudem summarized the importance of this doctrine in these words, God, in his wisdom, ordained a combination of human and divine influence in the birth of Christ, so that his full humanity would be evident to us from the fact of his ordinary human birth from a human mother, and his full deity would be evident from the fact of his conception in Mary's womb by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was not conceived by the will of a human man. Rather, he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. The virgin birth makes possible the unity of the divine And the human, Jesus, was the God-man. Secondly, the virgin conception points definitively to the miracle by which this child is conceived without sin, without sin. Scottish theologian A.B. Bruce wrote that a sinless man is as much a miracle in the moral world as a virgin birth in the physical world. See, according to Scripture, all those who descend from Adam receive the guilt of sin. Sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. I've often thought and have said it before that uh, the TV show The Adams Family was aptly named because they were all dead. However, Jesus doesn't descend from Adam. He's not a member of the Adam's family and therefore he does not participate in that common condition of sin. Recall the words of the angel to Mary one more time. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called holy. The biblical witness is that Jesus lived a sinless life. How do we explain that truth? How do we understand it? How do we wrap our minds around it? It's simply this. that well, it's not simple, but it's simply this. His essential nature is directly linked to the essential nature of his conception. So that a break was effected in the transmission of original sin. Roman Catholic theologians struggled with this, which is why they ended up creating the doctrine of Mary's sinlessness. They they had a very difficult time wrapping their minds around it all. We sinners could not reproduce ourselves out of the dilemma of our sin. You might recall that At the birth of Cain, clear back again in Genesis, Eve said of Cain, or said about his birth, I have gotten a male child with the help of God. It's likely that Eve may have thought at the time that the birth of Cain fulfilled the prophecy of God regarding a Redeemer who would come. But again, we sinners can't reproduce ourselves out of the dilemma of our sin. There has to be an intervention. There has to be a disruption from outside Adam's race. And in the conception of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit, God provided that disruption, that break in the transmission of original sin, and provided a holy, sinless Son. R.C. Sproul put it this way, From God, Jesus received his divine nature, bypassing the sin nature that comes down to all of us from Adam. And so we read in Hebrews 4, verse 15, that in every respect, Jesus Christ was tempted as we are, yet without sin. The Apostle Paul was able to write to the Corinthians that at the cross, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that is Jesus, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Third implication regarding this doctrine is that the virgin birth points us to the miraculous nature of God's redemption of humanity. and Indeed, the, the virgin conception of Jesus can be explained only by the unilateral sovereign act of God. This child is a gift from him. Humanity needed a perfect human savior, but humanity could never produce one. The birth of Christ emphasizes the need for God's supernatural invention, intervention in history, and it displays God's initiative in doing that. John wrote, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Paul wrote to the Galatians in chapter 4, verse 4. I'm told that I've got this wrong scripture reference there. It should read Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law. And in Hebrews we read, since therefore the children, that is you and I, humanity, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He took on human flesh. Human blood ran through his veins, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery." Jesus later said, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The coming of Jesus was a rescue mission. God sent him on a rescue mission to earth. See, without the virgin birth, the world has no Savior. If Jesus is simply the product of an act of infidelity on Mary's part, or even if He's merely the product of their marriage. Then He is not God. He's no different from you and I. And if He's not God, then His claims are false. If His claims are false, He cannot provide salvation. And if there is no Savior, if He cannot provide salvation, then we are still in our sins. And as Paul put it, we are of all men most to be pitied because we have believed and propagated a lie. So here's the final question. Can a Christian deny the virgin conception and birth? Can a a genuine Christian, a genuine biblical Christian, deny the virgin conception and birth? And the answer is a resounding no. If the Bible is true, and I believe that it is, I accept it as the inspired and authoritative Word of God, then we cannot deny the virgin conception and birth. Each of us has come, got to come to terms with the reality that to deny the virgin conception and birth is to deny Jesus as the Savior. The Christ who died on the cross for our sins is none other than the baby who was conceived by the Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The virgin birth isn't presented to us as a sweet story that can be merely acknowledged at Christmas time with a smile and the wink of an eye. It doesn't stand alone as a non-essential and therefore optional biblical doctrine. On the contrary, it's, it's an irreducible, essential element of the biblical revelation about God's plan of redemption that he carried out through the virgin birth, the sinless life, the sacrificial death, and the glorious resurrection of his one and only son, Jesus Christ. Without that, the gospel is an empty message. But in truth, God has sent us a Savior. Amen? Jesus, Son of God, Son of Man, is our Savior. Our sin and our failure aren't the the final word because he, the only perfect, sinless representative of the human race, died as our substitute in our place, bearing our sins. And he rose again so that our sins can be forgiven. We have the hope of eternal life. And we know that our lives have meaning and value in the here and now. We're not alone in the universe. Emmanuel, God with us, came, lived, died, was raised again from the dead, was exalted to the right hand of the Father, and he lives within those who trust in him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for its power. And even though we're approaching these subjects in very straightforward ways, we pray, Lord, that you would move us by them that we would be sanctified in your truth, that we would be made more and more like Jesus because we take seriously the revelation that you offered us in your word. I pray today for those who have not yet come to know Jesus. I pray, Lord, that uh, you would move in their hearts to grant them the gift of faith that leads to life And I pray it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.